I want to thank you all for being in here. And it is really important to be under the ministry of the Word. It is a, one of the chief means of God's grace in your life. So thank you for being here. I'm glad of it. We're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 53 and read through 811. 753 is right at the end of that chapter of John 7. The story of the woman taken in adultery. 753. And everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are continually amazed at the gracious words that pour forth from our Lord's mouth. Father, make us more like him. Help us to discern good and evil, to discern sin and righteousness, but to speak with the gracious words of Jesus and call everyone to life, life that is only in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. You guys know how to respond when someone insists that there's no such thing as absolute truth, right? You ask them if that assertion is absolutely true. Uh, likewise, when someone says to you that Christians should not point out to other people that their behavior is good or bad because nobody has the authority to make such determinations for other people, what should your response be? You just made a determination for me about what's good and bad. See, the, the thing about judging is that we all do it. And when you insist that it shouldn't be done, you're doing it, right? There's a very popular assertion these days that Christian, Christians should be more tolerant and less judgmental toward other people. That assertion is intolerant and judgmental. If you think it isn't, just tell the person who says it to you that they're wrong. Our culture is paying a whole lot of attention these days to how Christians respond to various behaviors in other people that we believe to be sinful, especially these days, sexual behaviors. For us to, who trust in and follow Jesus Christ, the real questions that have to be answered are these. How did Jesus, who never sinned, 
deal with sin in other people? And how must we as followers of Jesus, who have all sinned, deal with sin in other people? The passage that we're looking at this morning is one of the most instructive in answering those two questions, and it's also one of the most abused. It's probably the passage most often used to defend positions that are entirely unbiblical with regard to those questions. Now I should point out briefly, and I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I should point out briefly at the front end of this that there's some uncertainty about where this passage belongs in the Gospels. Many of your Bibles have it in brackets. Some actually have it in the in the margin. That's because in the, the manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts of the, Old, of the uh, New Testament, uh, this passage doesn't always show up here. In some manuscripts, it doesn't show up at all. And in at least one, it shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Without any other commentary, I'm just going to read you R.C. Sproul's comments on that issue because his reflect mine, and he says it better than I can. He says, at the same time, the overwhelming consensus is that this account is authentic. What he means by that is it actually happened. It's apostolic, and that means it was written by an apostle or under the authority of an apostle. And then he says, and it should be contained in any edition of the New Testament. I believe it is nothing less than the very Word of God, so I will treat it as such, end quote. That's as much as I'll say on that point. Now, what's actually going on in this passage? This is a test. It's a very carefully orchestrated test imposed upon Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees from the Jerusalem temple. These guys were among the most respected and most powerful Jews in the Roman Empire. They were the ones who were considered the authorities on the law of Moses and on how the law was to be applied in daily life. This was a trap. They had already decided who Jesus was, that He wasn't the Messiah, and they were out to get Him. Now many scholars have said that the the temple officials in Jerusalem had not formally been authorized by the Roman government ever to execute somebody, to stone them to death. And that that's why they had to go to the Romans to get Jesus crucified. Well, I think when you say, when we recognize the the validity of that statement, that the the Roman officials had not authorized the Jewish officials to perform an execution, they had not formally authorized them. The emphasis has to be on the word formally. Because if you read Acts chapter 7, you see that one of the first deacons in the church of Jesus Christ, a very faithful man named Stephen, was publicly stoned to death in the same place where these things were taking place, in the temple grounds, in Jerusalem by the same group of people. So uh, there's actually, I think, politically a lot more to why Jesus was 
crucified instead of stoned by the Jews. There's a lot going on there. But it's not as simple as saying that the Jews couldn't do something like that. We need to understand that the concern of these Pharisees and scribes when they brought this this disgraced woman in tow to Jesus was not, their concern was not to accomplish a just judgment against the woman. There were many things wrong with this picture, not the least of which is that the man was nowhere to be seen. Adultery is a two-person sin. And the law calls for the execution of both. Now, the Pharisees' purpose here was to judge the one who, in chapter 5 of this gospel, had declared himself to be the judge of all mankind. This was the judged judging the judge. But when the episode ended, these religious authorities were the ones facing the judgment of God. They presented a test to Jesus. It was a one-question test. And the question was, Jesus, do you who claim to be God's promised Messiah, the Son of God, the God-appointed judge over all mankind, do you respond to sin the same way God does? The same way God always has. If you don't, you're not the Messiah. You're a fraud. Now again, they were pretty sure they knew the answer to that question. They believed that the law of Moses told them everything they needed to know about how to deal with specific sins. And it was quite specific and quite clear on the issue of adultery. It wasn't multiple choice. It wasn't a range of possible sentences. It was execution at the hands of God's people acting on behalf of God to judge a sin that corrupted the entire land of Israel. The whole congregation was commissioned by God to carry out that execution with the accusers being the first to cast the stones. With that very unambiguous standard in hand, the Pharisees set out to catch Jesus contradicting the law and thus contradicting God. They had heard about Him going around telling people their sins were forgiven. And they assumed anyone who would do that takes a lenient view of sin. In case you haven't noticed, the culture of this world is imposing that same kind of test on us, on Christians, on those who identify themselves as followers of Christ. Not because they actually care what Jesus did and said, but because we say we care what Jesus did and said. And maybe a little bit because they think Jesus was a a good guy. The Pharisees, it's interesting, the Pharisees sought to judge Jesus with the law as their standard because the law represented the character of God. Our culture, with the help of many professing Christians, seeks to judge us with Jesus as the standard because we say Jesus is our standard. And you know what? Both of those are legitimate tests. If Jesus doesn't deal with sin the way God deals with sin, He's not from God. He's a fake. And if you and I don't deal with sin the way Jesus deals with sin, then we're not representing Christ, we're representing us, and we're fakes. 
The underlying premise for both of these two groups, the Pharisees and our culture (laughs) today, the underlying premise is that Jesus was lenient when it came to dealing with sin and sinners. The difference is one group is really unhappy about that and the other group is really happy about that, right? The Pharisees were determined to catch Jesus being too lenient on sinners. Our culture is bent on catching us not being lenient enough on sinners. At least, of course, until the sin is a sin against the person doing the complaining and then they shift really quickly over to the Pharisees' position. As we'll see, both groups have that underlying premise about Jesus fatally wrong. That is the premise that Jesus was lenient on sin. And we're going to keep this pretty simple. We're going to consider how Jesus fared with the test that the Pharisees presented to him and how we fare with the test that the world is presenting to us as his followers. And we're going to do so by considering two pairs of questions that are on the board there. Two pairs of questions. The first pair is, how did Jesus deal with sin? And does that match up with how God deals with sin? The second pair is, how do we as Christ followers deal with sin and does that match up with how Jesus dealt with sin? Is that pretty straightforward? Okay. First, how did Jesus deal with sin? We're going to consider that question from the perspective of three components of judgment. The verdict, did he call sin, sin, and sinners, sinners? The sentence, did he pronounce a just judgment against sinners? And the punishment, did he consign sinners to that just just punishment? The verdict, the sentence, and the punishment. First, the verdict. Did Jesus call sin, sin? And did he call sinners, sinners? One of the most common arguments that you hear from the world and from too many professing Christians about this passage is this. They say, since Jesus didn't pass judgment on this adulterous woman who'd been caught in the act, and since Jesus told the Jewish authorities that they weren't supposed to pass judgment on this woman, then who are we to pass judgment on anybody? To modernize the wording some, how can we call ourselves followers of Christ if we're less tolerant of another person's behavior than Christ was. The problem with that analysis is that it shamelessly reinvents what Jesus actually said and did in this passage. The assertion that Jesus was too loving and tolerant to declare anyone to be guilty of sin is utter nonsense. Here in John 8, Jesus is granted more subtle about how he convicted the Jewish authorities than he was in many other passages. Try reading Matthew 23. (laughs) But none of these men walked away without getting the point. They understood very clearly when they walked away that they had just been indicted by Jesus as sinners. He said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, you need to understand, of course, that the Pharisees used the word sinner 
as a category of humanity that absolutely didn't apply to them. It was another category of humanity. There were the righteous people and there were the sinners. So I tend to think, I don't want to speculate about what Jesus wrote in the sand in any detail, but I tend to think that whatever He wrote there was purposed to convince them that they belonged in that category called sinners. I don't know what it was. I've heard all kinds of crazy speculation about that. But here's what I do know. If Jesus determined to write in the dirt something that would convince me of the wretchedness of my heart, He would run out of dirt to write it in before He ran out of dirt to write about. By the end of their encounter with Jesus on that particular day, every last one of the religious men who had come to entrap Him walked away bearing God's verdict. Guilty. By the way, I don't know what happened to any of these guys after this, but at the end of that encounter, they were closer to the kingdom than they had ever been. The Pharisees came into the battle locked and loaded, full of self-righteous confidence. They left disarmed. Their effort to judge the judge had left them judged. Jesus' final words to the woman left her under the same verdict. Guilty. He did not say to her, your act of adultery was no big deal. He did not say to her that her sin wasn't really a sin. He said the opposite. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Did Jesus call sin sin? Did He call sinners sinners? Yes. Without hesitation, without compromise. And He put all of us under that same verdict. In John chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus indicted all of mankind as sinners already bitten by the curse of death just as the Israelites in the wilderness had been bitten by the serpents doomed to die apart from God's gracious provision of salvation. The verdict that Jesus pronounced against all men in John 3.19 was the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. He's not talking about some people. He's talking about all people. Jesus never pulled his punches when it came to identifying sin as sin and sinners as sinners. And in doing so, he made it very clear that the bar, God's standard of righteousness by which we are measured, is not down here where we can reach it. It's up there where God is. The standard to which God holds us in judging us is His righteousness. And we all fall infinitely short of that standard. The verdict is guilty. How about the sentence? Did Jesus pronounce a sentence against sinners? A, to declare a deserved punishment? Yeah, He did. The assertion again that He was too loving and too tolerant to tell people that they deserved condemnation is utter 
nonsense, unbiblical craziness. He didn't say to this woman that her sin was not worthy of death by stoning. He didn't say that the law of Moses was too harsh in its prescription of that punishment. His sentence was the same as his father's sentence. (laughs) And that sentence was far, far worse than mere physical death. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said, anyone who so much as calls his brother clueless, airheaded, or who calls his brother a fool is guilty before the highest court and deserves to go into fiery hell. Those are his words. In that same discourse, Jesus declared that If a man lusts in his heart after a woman, that's adultery. And if that man is not willing to pluck out his own eye or cut off his own hand to put an end to that adulterous lust, he's headed for hell. And he's already headed for hell, but Jesus is simply making, he's making a point about everyone. How many Christian men do you know who have completely conquered lust? That's put behind them, they never have to mess with it anymore. No struggle. Okay, how many one-eyed, one-handed Christian men do you know? The point was not to fill the body of Christ with one-eyed, one-handed men. Even blind men struggle with lust. The point is that Jesus labeled all of us, excuse me, Jesus labeled all of us as sinners and he declared that we are all worthy of hell. And the standard that he said that we have to meet is you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5.48. Repeatedly in his parables, Jesus presented examples of sinners being cast into a place of outer darkness because of various sins, a place in which there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, it refers to that place as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The place shows up again in the last book, at the end of the last book of the Bible in Revelation 20. I'll let you look that up yourself. See, Jesus was, he was really walking on eggshells, you know, to avoid offending people, wasn't he? Mr. Sensitive. That's what we're expected to do. When Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time, it was most assuredly part of his commission from his Father to declare God's verdict against mankind in total and his verdict against every individual person. It was also a critical part of Christ's commission from His Father to declare, to pronounce God's sentence against us as sinners. His verdict, guilty. His sentence, hell. Eternal condemnation. So, how could Jesus tell this woman that He did not condemn her? What happened with the punishment part of God's just judgment? Did Jesus consign sinners to the just and deserved penalty that we 
Oh, to God. <laughs> he did and he didn't. The first time he came from heaven to earth, he came to seek and save the lost. When he comes back, it won't be to save. It will be to judge. He said to the adulterous woman, I do not condemn you. Now she was just about to be stoned to death by the temple authorities to receive the earthly portion of the just punishment for her sin that had been declared by God generations earlier in the law. Jesus said to her, in effect, I do not consign you to that judgment. I do not hand you over to men or to God to receive the punishment that you deserve. How could Jesus do that? How could He withhold even for a moment, the punishment that the law of God required for that woman's sin without violating his father's holiness. Wasn't he making the Pharisees' case for them? Did Jesus deal with sin the way God dealt with sin? If he didn't, he was a phony Messiah. Well, let's consider that question in light of what the Old Testament reveals about God's verdict, God's sentence, and God's punishment towards sinful men. First, does God call sin, sin, and sinners, sinners? Does God pronounce a just sentence against sinners? Well, you don't have to go any further than the third chapter of the Bible to get the answers to those two questions. And the answers are yes and yes. From Genesis 3 forward, the rest of the Old Testament is filled with examples of God pointing out the many and varied sins of His people and of all the pagan nations that surrounded them and declaring His fierce anger against both the sin and the sinners. The Old Testament contains judgment after judgment in the temporal realm alongside declarations of coming cataclysmic judgment that the New Testament tells us will usher in the final eternal judgment of God against sinners. So, yes, Jesus was doing just as the God of the Old Testament had done when He identified sin as sin and declared a verdict of guilty against mankind. And he was doing just as the God of the Old Testament had done when he pronounced the uncompromising, everlasting sentence of God against those sinners. But what about when Jesus withheld God's condemnation from this woman? The God whose character was revealed in the law of Moses, the God of the Old Testament would never have withheld the punishment due to a sinner, right? If I ever ask you that question in earnest and actually mean it, then you should ask me which Old Testament I've been reading. I'm going to read you just a few quick passages from the real Old Testament. First is from Psalm 51, the first couple of verses. This was a psalm written by King David right after the prophet Nathan skewered him, nailed him for the sins of adultery, conspiracy, and murder. David said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Did God grant the grace for which David cried out in that psalm or did He give David what he deserved? Look at Psalm 103. Another psalm of David written later. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. A few verses later, he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know where he got that? He got that from God. Exodus 34, God's declaration to Moses of his own character. David says, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And one more passage. This is Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast covenant love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now let me ask you again. When Jesus withheld the punishment that this adulterous woman clearly deserved, was He dealing with sin as His Father deals with sin? You bet He was. But how could a holy God... A God who hates sin be the God described in those passages. On what basis can the God who hates sin with holy wrath forgive sin and withhold the punishment due to sinners? By turning a blind eye to their sin? Never. Never. Never will God deny His holiness by ignoring sin. In that same passage in Exodus 34 where He said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, He went on to say, He will by no means leave sin unpunished. There's only one way that God restrains His own hand from pouring out on us the punishment that we deserve without violating His own holiness. And beloved, that way has absolutely nothing to do with leniency towards sin. In fact, it is the furthest thing imaginable from leniency towards sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, God withholds His fierce wrath from us by not withholding His fierce wrath 
by pouring it out on His Son. The one and only basis on which our holy God can forgive and redeem and restore sinners in any age is the death of Jesus Christ in our place. Whether He's applying the blood of Jesus Christ to a sinner before the crucifixion happened or applying the blood of Jesus Christ to a sinner after the crucifixion happened, it is always the precious atoning blood of Jesus Christ alone that pays the debt of that person's sin. The God for whom a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as as a day doesn't care when it happened. It's the blood of Christ alone that atones for the sin of man. That is not tolerance of sin. That is not leniency towards sinners. To say any such thing is to make a mockery of the greatest gift ever given and the greatest cost ever paid. The crucifixion of the sinless Son of God was the most uncompromising outpouring of God's wrath against sin imaginable. Jesus, the sinless Son of God and the righteous judge of all mankind, was sent from heaven to earth by His Father to bear the full weight of the just punishment that we deserved. To make Himself the object of God's fiery wrath in our place. John 3 says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has been judged already because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. There is only one payment for your sin and mine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus didn't just bear our punishment. He bore it all. He bore the verdict. He bore the sentence. He bore the punishment. God's verdict of guilty was removed from us and applied to Jesus so that we receive from God a verdict not merely of not guilty, but of spotless, blameless, holy, worthy, the verdict that belongs to Christ. God's sentence against us, accursed, destined for eternal condemnation, was removed from us and put upon Jesus. God's punishment of eternal separation from God was removed from us and put upon Jesus. And you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't eternally separated from God. That's entirely because of who Jesus was. For the sinless, eternal Son of God to spend six hours abandoned by His Father is more than full measure of us spending an eternity paying for our sin. Only the sinless, eternal Son of God could pay in a single day our infinite debt. And by the way, in the Old Testament, you know what the measure of the greatest, most amazing victory was? It was accomplished in a single day. 
That's what happened with David and Goliath, by the way. And it's pointed out in the passage. That's how Jesus dealt with our sin. That's how His Father dealt with our sin through the death of His Son in our place. So how are we as followers of Jesus to deal with sin? We're sinners. How are we to deal with sin? Tell me if you've heard this kind of thing before from people who call themselves Christians. God accepts us all just as we are. You can come to Him as you are and you can remain as you are. Everything between you and God will be just great because God is love. Nobody in the community of God's people is ever going to call you a sinner. Nobody's going to tell you you have to stop doing things. That'd be way too harsh. Jesus is loving. We're we're loving. This is your safe place. Here in the body of Christ, you get to be yourself. Doesn't that sound great? I hope not. I hope that sounds as repugnant to you as it sounds to me. Beloved, if sin is not sin, grace is not grace. God's forgiveness is not tolerance of sin. God's grace is not leniency towards sinners. God's forbearance is not a license for people to keep doing what they're doing. You know what the single most ungracious and unloving most ungracious and unloving thing is that you can do to an unsaved person? Tell him that his sin isn't sin. That's worse than not sharing the gospel with him. Because you're helping convince him that he doesn't need the gospel. He doesn't need Jesus. He's okay with God. To tell someone who's violating God's will and God's character that what they're doing is fine with God is horribly unloving. Like it or not, a critical part of every believer's assignment as agents of Jesus Christ, even as redeemed sinners, is to call sin, sin, and to call sinners, sinners. It's wonderfully gracious to do so. But the other side of that coin is every bit as critical. And this is where we tend to really falter. This is also where our assignment is different than Christ's. As we proclaim to men God's verdict against them and God's sentence against them, there must be nothing of us in that proclamation except our own utter lack of merit before God. You can't leave that unsaid when you share the Gospel. You and I bring to the task of evangelism the very same same thing that we brought to God on the day of our salvation. And by the way, it's the very same thing that we bring to the table in the task of rebuking or correcting a brother or sister in Christ. And that is, that thing that we bring to the table is our own desperate need for the grace of God every moment of every day. Anytime we ask the question, why hasn't God dealt justly with, and then fill in the blank, we're in effect asking, why doesn't God love justice and righteousness as much as I do? And it shouldn't take 
more than a moment's reflection for us to realize the question we should be asking is why do I not love grace as much as God does? Why do, why do I, who have been showered with the grace of God when I deserved condemnation, not love grace as much as God does? I encourage you to spend some time in the Old Testament looking at what God says He does with all His heart and what He says He doesn't do with all His heart. He actually comments on that. I'll let you look, do some looking on that. Why do I not long to see His grace applied to others, including those who have sinned against me, just as it was applied to me? Why does that not fill my thinking and fill my prayers and bring me to tears for the lost? This is a very big deal. The sins that drew the harshest response from Jesus throughout His earthly ministry were not sins like adultery, theft, participation in pagan sacrifices, or even murder. The sins that drew the harshest response from Jesus were sins of self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and unforgiveness. It wasn't the pet sins of the pagan Gentiles that provoked the harshest response from Jesus. It was the pet sins of the religious Jews who claimed to love the God who sent Jesus. God hates our self-righteousness more than a thousand other sins because self-righteousness despises grace. It pretends to deserve grace. And it's the on-ramp to a life of uselessness to God. Jonathan Edwards wrote that spiritual pride is, quote, Listen to this. Spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. It is the main handle by which the devil has hold of religious persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. On the other side of that equation, Edwards went on to say, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. And so prepares the mind for true divine light without darkness and so clears the eye to look on things as they truly are. I say to my brothers and sisters in Christ and I say to those who are here who do not know Him yet, if there are any. The verdict from the one righteous judge of all mankind against every one of us is guilty. And the sentence from the one righteous judge against us has been pronounced. We all deserve condemnation forever. You can disagree with that all you want and it's still as certain as gravity, more certain than gravity. But the punishment that God assigned to us has been borne by another. 
for those who believe in Jesus Christ. The punishment we deserved has been borne by the one righteous judge himself. <laughs> My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Dear Father, we declare our praise to the righteous judge of all mankind. We declare our praise for your holiness, our praise for your righteous hatred of our sin, our praise for your crystal clear declaration to us of what we deserve from your hand. We declare praise overflowing with gratitude that you sent the righteous judge to bear upon himself the full weight of our sin so that we who believe in Him stand justified, emptied of our sin and clothed in His righteousness in Your eyes forever. Make us faithful ambassadors for Him who is both just and the justifier of all who have faith in Him alone. Make us faithful to proclaim Your verdict against sinners, Your sentence against sinners, and Your astounding gift to sinners through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is for His sake, for His glory, in His name that we pray.